0: I want to take you back in time to 2012, January the 13th. It's night and a cruise ship has hit submerged rocks just off the Italian island of Giglio. This is the recording made of the conversation taking place between the Italian coast guard and the captain of the ship, the Costa Concordia, as it began to sink. Passengers are still on the ship, but the captain is not. The coast guard orders him to get back on board to coordinate the rescue. Tell me how many people are still on board. Are there children, women or people in need of assistance? He demands to know. And he's angry. You can hear how angry he is. There were more than 4,000 people on that ship. Despite being so close to land, they didn't all survive. A rescue effort that lasted six hours brought most of the passengers ashore, but 33 people died. A subsequent investigation focused on the shortcomings in the procedures followed by the Costa Concordia's crew and the actions of her captain, Francesco Scatino. Three years later, he was convicted of multiple counts of manslaughter, causing a maritime accident and abandoning ship before all passengers and crew had been evacuated. He was sentenced to 16 years in jail. What can we learn from the Costa Concordia? And more broadly, how can huge companies create a culture in which safety is paramount and accidents don't happen? This is the Catastrophe Podcast. I'm Jill Koenig, a consultant working in high-hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless, grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change, to speak to other experts and frontline workers, to expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes, and ultimately to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. With me is Matthew Price, a journalist who I first met when he was with the BBC. He's now at Sky News. You went to Giglio when the Costa capsized, didn't you, Matthew?
1: Yeah, and you know that the thing that always comes to mind when I think about Giglio and getting there is, and this sometimes happens and it sounds awful, but you can go to the site of a disaster and the sight of it can be awesome in so many ways and... (laughs) The sight of that ship lying on its side off a beautiful little Italian island, with its with its lovely waterfront and and the businesses and the shops all along it, you you can imagine it. You know, colorful painted buildings, and then this vast hulking white cruise ship lying um, at at ninety degrees in the water, with it, with half of it sticking out and the other half submerged, is just imprinted on my mind. I mean, it was such an incredible sight and such an awful sight at the same time.
0: So one of the issues I'm interested in exploring in this podcast are the competing tensions in organizations between, for example, making money and keeping customers and staff safe. We know that the captain of the Costa made an unapproved and unauthorized deviation from the ship's planned course because it's claimed he wanted to show off the ship to people. In yeah,
1: and this is when he hit the rocks. This is when Scatino took the ship so close to the island that he hit these rocks that were just peeking up from above the waves. I remember uh, we took a little launch out there from from one of the guys who lived on the island who had a, a small boat, and I went out to see those rocks. And and like I say, they just sort of as the waves ebb and flow as they sort of just gently go back down around the edge of the island, that's when you see these rocks. They, they just nudge out of the water there. And that's what put the hole in the side of the boat. And, and the story we had at the time was that Scatino, the captain, had done this to give some of the passengers a treat. In fact, he said that he'd taken the ship so close to land for commercial reasons to please his passengers and those on the shore. And, and you know, if you think about it, what are cruise ships all about? They're about giving people a good time.
0: Often in situations like this, we tend to simply blame the captain and go, he made a stupid decision. But I think it's important to understand the context he was operating in and these tensions between, Matthew, what you were talking about, the commercial pressure, um, wanting to please customers and keeping people safe. And I want to look particularly at the role of leadership. And we'll do this a little later when I speak to the man who led a potentially extremely dangerous and difficult oil and gas project in Qatar.
1: But first, we're going to get what's a really incredible perspective on what happened that night on the Costa Concordia with Rose Metcalf. She was a dancer on the ship. She loved her job. She now lives in California. She's a personal energy coach. And as you'll hear, she is incredibly happy to be alive. She was rescued by helicopter as she hung from the side of the ship, and she really thought she was going to die. It was a far cry, of course, from her feelings when she landed the job in the first place.
2: Well, it was a dream life and suddenly a dream come true graduating from university in London and then two days later uh, getting the job on board the cruise ship, getting to travel and be paid to do what I love. I mean, we as dancers had a a semi-celebrity status on board. Because the performers are seen on stage, the passengers really get a kick out of seeing us out and about so we would you know have passengers asking us for pictures or asking us about our shows and our performances and just wanting to know about us so the company that we worked for really encouraged us to do that too and there was a very strict dress code of of being you know in full ball gowns and uh fully dressed and then out and about in the cruise area and really yeah seen as these celebrities on board the ship
1: when you spoke to the passengers I mean, did they, were were you, were were the dancers, was the entertainment, was that part of why they were there?
2: People go on cruise ships for different reasons, uh, but a huge piece of it is the onboard entertainment. I mean, the standard of entertainment on cruise ships has dramatically changed from you know the perception of the variety shows that used to be on cruise ships and now you know there are full West End or Broadway productions on cruise ships. It is a, a central part. We would perform four shows a night. So it's quite intensive and that was to make sure that all the passengers would have an opportunity to watch the show and we would have several shows running. So we had quite a, a big repertoire. So just about all the passengers would recognize us as dancers, which informed me that they had Seen the shows?
1: So, can you tell us about that that f- sort of fateful evening?
2: I was in the laundress bar, which is on the fifth deck at the back of the ship, and I was just enjoying a cappuccino between my shifts, uh, doing photos with passengers. And uh, it was what I imagine an earthquake to feel like. There was this heavy rocking back in my chair. I was thrown back in my seat. Uh, My coffee started levitating out of the cup, defying gravity. Just, you know, those little droplets coming upwards out of the cup. All the glasses that were in the bar were shimmering against each other. Uh, Things started crashing to the ground. There's loud smashing sounds. And Um, just this harrowing sound. If you've ever heard the recorded sound of whales moaning, it sounded like that. What I believe that was, was the metal being ripped. And what I did was I jumped over the back of my seat and I peeled the blind away from the window and immediately behind the blind was a cliff face rock. It, It became like a, if you've ever seen a bees swarm a hive, it became like that, this frantic energy. But I remember you know, yelling something like, get your life jacket, get to your muster station. And a muster station is a place where your register is taken so that you can get onto the assigned lifeboat or life raft. So I just remember shouting that and then sprinting out of the room. I was in a cocktail dress and stilettos. I was in no condition to be able to swim, to be able to, I mean, really practically do anything. So I looked down the stairwell, it looked like a bee swarming with the people just frantically having no idea, no direction um, of what to do. And so I made it down one level of the stairs, down one floor, and then I pushed open the double doors, and uh, I started sprinting and then kicked off my stilettos because I was sliding all over the place, and I sprinted all the way to the front of the ship. And at this point, I had no idea if there was, you know, Titanic-style, you know, water rushing down the corridors or anything. It was very, very frightening. We have codes on ships of what the fault is, like what what is happening. You know, if it's a bomb, if it's pirates, if it's a fire, if it's whatever it is. And the the code that was going on was electrical fault, and and we were being told that it was an electrical fault. Now I knew we'd hit land, so it wasn't an electrical fault. We were sinking, but nobody was telling us that. Um, and they were essentially telling passengers to go back to their cabins and await instructions. And it was an electrical fault. So that, I mean, no doubt, no doubt that is why uh, some people died. They died in their cabins because they were told to go back to their cabins. There was a moment when I was going to my muster station, that I was ordered by my superior officer, who is a cruise director, which means in charge of the performers she actually ordered me to go put my dress back on, go back into the lounge and entertain the passengers. At which moment I turned around and said, I quit. And then carried on with the evacuation. Um, I'd managed to get 400 people, uh, crew members and passengers back into the body of the ship where they'd be able to get to lifeboats and life rafts or be able to at least swim. And I ended up marooned with four of my colleagues. And uh, as the ship was sinking, at this point, we didn't know we were on a sand shelf. And so at this point, I honestly believed I was going to die. And I turned to the Indonesian colleague that I was marooned with, and he had a very, very rudimentary phone. And I said to him, because I didn't have anything on me, I said to him, can I borrow that? And he said, yes, but I have 1% battery and I have 10 cents, I think it was, of Available credit on this pay phone. You know, it's like a pay as you go uh, little phone. And uh, he said yes. And so I tried, you know, I tried everything, but there was no signal, so I couldn't call. Um, but somehow I managed to connect to the internet. I wasn't able to send an email, but I was able to send a Facebook message. So I sent a Facebook message to my dad. Bless him. I think it was about 3 a.m. his time. And he happened to see this Facebook message uh, where I told him that we were sinking and to call Mayday. And so he called the Italian Coast Guard, raised the alarm, called Mayday. I believe Costa also then, you know, several hours in did call Mayday as well. Um, But as soon as I got that message to my dad, it wasn't long after that I started to see the Coast Guard boat come out. And then later on, the Italian Air Force, who eventually rescued me.
1: I remember standing there on the dockside, looking at the ship on its side, when presumably you would left Giglio, the island that you ran against, that the ship hit. And I remember the narrative very quickly came. It was a crazy captain. The captain did this. The captain was under pressure. He wanted to do this. He was showing off. It all became about the captain.
2: I find it fascinating psychologically. Of course, he didn't fulfill his responsibility by coordinating the rescue. Um, People died because the lifeboats cannot possibly evacuate the ship effectively when the ship is on its side. I mean, we've seen it in the movie Titanic. It's, It's just illogical. Like, if a ship is on its side, how on earth? I literally saw lifeboats on the upper side tip people out to their death. I saw that happen. Why are there still lifeboats that function on pulleys on big ships? It doesn't make sense. It's a a
0: big theme of the, the book and the podcast we're doing is how blame stops you from seeing deeper systemic issues. So what you're speaking to absolutely is a example of that. And you just see it over and over again.
2: Absolutely. And I I would love to just say that it's, you know, we just buy into, into whatever the narrative is, and we don't look at the deeper thing. And if we actually, it's psychologically proven that if you inform people of what is happening, they will act reasonably. You know, the telling everyone to go back to their cabins to stay calm, you know, that actually doesn't help. That used to, we used to think that we used to tell need to tell people that. Actually, if you tell people the truth, okay, you know, we're sinking, you, we need to evacuate, we've called Mayday. People do actually act reasonably. And so you have to tell people the truth. You know, you have to give people the opportunity to escape and preserve their own lives if, if you're not going to.
1: These are two very different scenarios. But the moment Rose talks about that, about people doing what they are told, I just instantly started thinking about those poor people in the Grenfell Tower who were told to stay in their flats. It's
0: exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exactly the same as people were told. Well, they were told to stay in the the stay-put policy, so people were told... To stay in their flats inside of that, but they were also told that firefighters were on their way when that wasn't known. So the control room operators had no way of knowing whether a firefighter would actually get to their flat or not get to their flat. So they were, you know, there's the stay put, but then also they were told false information. And there's evidence in the inquiry about people saying they would have made different choices had somebody told them the truth. Like, we don't know if firefighters are going to get to you. Either you try and escape on your own or stay there, but you have to make the choice. And I think Rose's thing is, is that there's some kind of a infantilizing of people, is like somehow in an emergency situation, or maybe it's in any situation, like the masses are stupid and won't make rational choices. So we've somehow got to protect them from the truth.
2: And the thing is that that puts people into cognitive dissonance if you don't tell people what's going on and then the truth is different then people spin out into this place of this overwhelm of well you know and we're not able to actually use our cognitive function to make rational choices like you were saying and therefore that impacts and impedes your ability to survive and don't we all have a right to preserve our own lives I mean it's also it's it's it even
0: now with the cladding scandal is there's uh, people won't say to residents what they've got in their buildings or they won't release the fire risk assessment so you can be living in a building and your the managers of the building won't give you access to whether or not your building's safe, which is all the same as like somehow you know it's your life but you're you are you're not given responsibility for making choices inside of that.
1: I'm really struck by the fact that throughout this, even in the darkest moments when you're talking about where you thought you were going to die, you still smile about it. And I just wonder how you're doing with having lived through this, how you're doing with it all these years on.
2: Thank you. I went through survivor's guilt. I went through PTSD, what I would call a dark night of the ego, where I wasn't living, I was surviving and I was punishing myself for the fact that I was alive. It was no way to live, no way to live. And the truth of it is instead of being in a victim mentality of how could this happen to me, I had my dream life and it all got taken away from me. Instead of having that perspective, I was able to shift into my goodness what a gift. I've been gifted this wisdom of how to traverse from being in that victim mentality, which 95% of people exist in that world of life happens to me and realize that life happens for me and through me. And I really came into my empowerment and I get to live a second life. Don't really have any words. I'm just,
0: I'm so grateful I'm grateful to you for sharing yourself so generously.
2: Thank you. And for the work that you do, because I think when, you, you know, when you're closely connected to these, when you've been through them, when it's so close to your heart, you've, you get activated. And any time you don't do like what you're doing, When you don't use your voice and tell the truth and actually use that as your purpose, then you're in resistance and your life just doesn't work. But when you can take your story and you can use it to help humanity, help humanity survive, not only that, but thrive. And and this is the calling, right? That we don't want other people to suffer as we have suffered. And that is what gets us up in the morning and gets us moving. You know, this
0: desire to prevent people experiencing the pain and suffering from those that have been involved or closely connected to catastrophes is always startling to me and so evident in Rose's story. And for me is, again, the reason for writing my book and making this podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Jill. Um, It probably is worth just mentioning what a couple of the companies involved in this disaster have done and have said in the aftermath. Uh, There is the Carnival Corporation, which owns Costa Cruises, and they've said that the safety of their guests and crew remains and always has been their number one priority, um, both for the Carnival Corporation and for all of their cruise lines. And they did announce, in the aftermath of of the capsizing, a review of their procedures. Neither the Carnival Corporation nor Costa Cruises have faced any criminal prosecution. Costa Cruises accepted partial responsibility. They agreed to pay a one-million-euro fine. And five other employees, other than the captain, including the helmsman, were given prison sentences ranging from 18 months to two years and 10 months in plea bargains that were concluded early on in the investigation.
0: One of the key pieces missing in this puzzle is the role of leadership. And one of the people I wanted to hear from is Andy Brown. Andy's now the CEO of the Portuguese energy company Gelp. He worked for Shell for 19 years and was in charge of the Pull project in Qatar, which was the largest gas to liquid plant in the world, converting natural gas into liquid petroleum products. And the thinking he brought to that project combines practical measures and cultural aspects.
3: Qatar has the largest gas field in the world. And we were turning with some very advanced technology that gas into high quality lubricants and other products and fuels, which actually ended up to be a very successful project in the end. Lots of technology, lots of world records from an engineering standpoint, but I think probably more importantly, we demonstrated what you can do to create a culture of safety leadership on, on very major projects. That had a ripple effect through the, through the oil and gas industry. was still felt today.
1: What was the scale of it? What, what was the size of it sort of geographically?
3: It was an $18 billion investment. And I worked for Shell. And it was Shell put 100% of the money in. It was the largest investment that any oil and gas company in the world at that point of time in a single project. So the scale was enormous. We had 10 different world-scale contractors working there, each having about $2 billion each of work to do. So the coordination of all those companies, of the 50,000 people at peak that we had building it, from 65 nations, seven languages we were training in, I mean, the logistics effort, we had to build a town of 40,000 people, what we called a village, before we started work. So, you know, the dimensions were were really enormous. And, you know, it, it took, from an engineering standpoint, it took enormous skill. But I think the thing I'm most proud about is, yeah, the safety leadership, the culture we created, which actually did have impacts on, on not only better safety, but better quality and actually better productivity. So, you know a lot of people think safety is a cost it's not a cost if you do safety well you will generally do business well and so um you know i think we 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 did something i think that was kind of hadn't really been done um in the industry before
0: and andy i'm really interested in your own safety leadership journey so having worked with people like you over a number of years I know it's you don't wake up in the morning where you are now so anything that you think would be useful just to share about your your own journey or process development as a safety leader
3: yeah look I think in a shell as a company put safety as a a key priority It's, it's something that we all kind of Uh, live with. I think what's really important, Jill, is if something does go wrong. I think there are moments when you realize. So on the Pearl Project, um, we had a bad accident very early on and a a guy lost his hand. And I went to visit him in in the hospital uh, that evening where he'd lost his hand. Um, People did not expect that, you know, I would somehow ever want to face that reality the company who employed him clearly then was obliged to also show up because i was the big client boss and i met the guy and then you look at this guy and and, you know you you at that moment realize i think you, you come face to face with that whole issue about your accountability as a leader and through those kind of things, you actually pull everyone in, facing inwards rather than saying, okay, well, accidents happen and, and I'm for the guy. You then actually ask the company to make sure he's going to be employed in the future because for some people, an accident that causes harm and disability, it can destroy their, their working lives and, and their families around them. So, you know, you have to face that that's a much broader reality about their future and how, what you can do to help them so those moments, those moments really change people if they have the courage almost to actually face up to the consequences of their actions. And, and it, it, it does then change your mindset.
0: It's interesting because um, just in the stories that you've shared, a lot of them is about failure. And I, I, it just makes me think about how we don't use failure as the learning opportunity that it is. Because as you say, if you have the courage to face into it, it can be transformational.
3: Yeah. And it is really common to launch an investigation and try to find someone to blame. Really common. Um, and yeah, I think that's the wrong response of leadership. You need to find out what went wrong and, and where were the failures, but, but then you need to think about how you're going to change the environment. Now, I, I have talked negatively once the culture is a positive culture it can be so engaging we used to have a safety day every week so everyone stopped work for a day and it was a party bizarrely a party of people showing off the kind of things they're done to improve the safety environment around their particular work sites we brought Kapil Dev, indian cricket captain um I guess in the back in the 80s, because a lot of the workers were from South Asia, whether it's Pakistan, India or other places. And we brought him on site three times, you know, to actually be a vehicle, to actually talk to and engage with the workforce. This guy they would never have seen in all their lives, you know, was appearing there sort of demigod. If you find ways like that to, to unlock discretionary commitment, to get people engaged, you can go a long, long way and you can create energy around the subject positive energy not a negative energy a positive energy it takes a while to develop that but once you've developed it the culture lasts i mean it's 15 years since i was there you go to the site now that's been built and you will feel the same culture as we had in the construction it's quite compelling how those behaviors go quite deep within an organization
1: how do you change that culture though
3: It's about looking for weak signals. It's about people intervening if something's not quite right. So on all the accidents you've ever seen in the world, there will have been a whole bunch of what we call weak signals before the major event. And somehow there wasn't a consciousness at the working level for people to put their hand up and say, There's something here is not right, or this could go wrong, or this interlock switch or whatever else it is, is is, is not very reliable. We need to do something about it. So there's something about instilling that consciousness quite deep in an organization to intervene if things aren't right. And, you know, to recognize that, to reward it, to promote it. And it's all about stimulating that leadership behavior. I also think it's also about how you engage the frontline leaders, so the people that manage small crews. How many of those people have ever been given any instruction on how to lead? So on our project, we took 5,000 people and put them through leadership training at the Institute of Leadership and Management. So there's a nine-day leadership course for 5,000 people that actually gave them a qualification from the UK that they would have for the rest of their lives, but taught them how to manage a crew of, let's say, 10 people, You know how to stimulate the right behaviours, how to correct work that if it's not right, how to recognise people that are doing the right thing, and that whole dimension of how deeply you can drive leadership. Now, in the shipping companies, were they doing that? I have no idea. Perhaps they were doing that. I don't know. So I think it's, it's all about how do you get that deep? awareness, how, how you get people volunteering and intervening if things aren't right.
0: I think there's something else, Andy, um, in in what you're speaking to, because there's making sure that you're, uh, I mean, I hate this term, but almost walking the talk. So you can't say that you care without demonstrating that you care. So you can't say that you care and then give people awful accommodation. So there's something about... Especially at that senior executive and board level, really putting into practice what it is that you're saying in a way that's felt by the organisation.
3: I fully agree, Joel. So I often say the two most important things in safety leadership: is care and discipline. And care is interesting because safety is about people getting hurt, so it's not about statistics. Often it revolves around just discipline statistics. If you can demonstrate you care for people and their welfare they will actually show up differently. So for, in Qatar, and you know the whole story in Qatar and about the World Cup and how workers get treated badly. Well, clearly one of our priorities was to actually put a completely different welfare system in place. So what well, we built the Pearl Village, we had a mayor, we had sports fields, we had a cinema, we had a training center in the middle, and we kind of tried to make it a different place for them to live so they would experience coming to work differently and so how you can demonstrate care because only if you demonstrate care can you ask them then to be safe because it has to revolve around that virtuous circle i care for you so i want you to put safety as a priority and i'll show i care for you by doing things as a leader that show that
0: and um andy From the perspective of kind of a board level or very senior executive level, what advice would you give around how you navigate all of those competing tensions? Because, you know, everybody goes, yes, safety is a priority, but it's a priority amongst a whole host of other priorities. But just if you look from that level, what advice, learnings do you think would be useful to share?
3: It's really important. To use actually safety and safety leadership as a way to actually have a good discussion at a leadership, any company about what what they really stand for. so what are the values that you want to cascade into that organization? What are the values that you want to stand up and say, "I can be counted for this and how do you then you know, get that honest discussion around the table? I think when you have the conversation. You actually start to realize that underneath it, you know, everyone has the right motivations and values, but they just have to express it. And then they have to have the confidence to say, and I will be held accountable for that. I think it's just not discussed enough. It just isn't. It it isn't on the table. So I don't know whether it's in government or local, in big companies, everything is the same. And I just a great way to communicate with large organizations is to be kind of value-driven about what you stand for. And if people really connect to that, suddenly you actually find people engaging in different ways when you're, when you're that honest and that vulnerable almost.
0: So, you know, Matthew, you and I over the years have spoken a lot about people like Andy and their outstanding insights, leadership, culture that they create. And the cynical journalist in you, I don't think ever quite believes it when I've shared about these incredible people. So what do you think after hearing from Andy?
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe the cynical word is right. Um, it, it, listen, it is really great to hear Andy speaking. um, And and it's also, I mean, it's fascinating and illuminating to listen to the practical measures that He has put in place on that project and on other projects that he works on. So it's not just a sort of sense of what's the culture in the organization. It's also there are practical things that a leader like him does in order to reinforce both his own thoughts about what an organization, a good organization, needs to be and needs to stand for, but also, you know, the training that he gave his mid level managers or that that project gave the mid-level managers so that they could run their teams in an appropriate way. You know, all of that stuff, there's real sort of practical things we can take from it. Um, So all of that is terribly exciting. The thing that makes me rather sad, though, is the fact that actually when Andy talks about it, it's really simple. So why don't others do it?
0: one of the things we heard in the aftermath of the Costa Concordia and you hear a lot after disasters is people tend to focus on the technical issues and correcting procedures and very few people i think focus sufficiently on the whole leadership and cultural aspect probably because it's less tangible and far more difficult to tackle So you can easily go, they didn't follow the procedures. Whereas a far more useful question is what was the culture inside of which it made sense not to follow procedures? What's the leadership that we need to change so that it becomes natural for people to follow procedures? And I think that's often missed after accidents is this focus on the leadership and cultural aspects. So we've looked at a lot of aspects of disasters and areas that can be improved. Next up, it's something that has affected us all in the last year, and that's the pandemic. I'm going to look at the role of frontline workers and also the role of government and how sometimes governments can hamper progress. Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig, author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts.